You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I am Tom Knezic. Welcome to episode 175. And uh, Fran, this is one that you particularly are very uh, giddy for. I am. I feel like a little kid. I'm trying to think of the way to, yeah, best best word. I'll say, and I've I've mentioned this before on the podcast. It's been a long time since I've gotten like a little, like, butterflies before a podcast it's probably been over 100 episodes and i'm like ah, I'm, I'm past that i got butterflies today so yeah. it's uh it's one of those things where um you know if, when you're looking at being environmentally conscious inspiration can come in many different forms and it doesn't always work i know say with my wife agatha i've, I've given her bringing nature home yes and yes. it's just for her she's like i like I just feel like I'm reading facts, mm-hmm. like and I'm it's it's not entertaining. Uh, but then there's certain other things I can give her that resonates to her on a whole different level. Yeah, but has the same effect, and it's that that's how I feel about this guest. Yeah, and that's something we've always tried to highlight is connections come in many different ways, and um, there's different you have paths to, and different times. Yeah, when you're when you're talking to other people and trying to get them excited about native plants well they might not care about plants but they're gonna have something they're passionate about and it's connecting them to their passions but uh but yeah we have a really good guest today uh someone that a lot of folks have written in and asked us to have on so i would like uh to introduce everyone to camille dungy and camille why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, and what you do and where you are with your native plant journey great thank you that's that's quite an introduction. I really appreciate hearing that. And um, I'm super excited to be talking to you today. Um, so my name, as you said, is Camille Dungy. And I'm the author most recently of a book narrative called Soil, the Story of a Black Mother's Garden. And it released in May of 2023. It is the short version of the book is that it's the story of seven years of my family's journey to diversify the landscape in our own backyard from the ground up. And part of that effort is a decision to plant primarily native plants with an eye towards creating a pollinator-friendly, low-water, welcoming space around our landscape. We live in northern Colorado. We moved from the Bay Area of California to northern Colorado, which uh, was in many ways quite a change because the climate here is so... um, different, let's just say, from that more temperate California climate. Um, And so there was a lot of learning. It was a steep, steep learning curve for me in particular. I'm the primary gardener in the family um, to figure out how to plant here. And we can talk a little bit as we keep talking about why native plants became the obvious solution 
for that. So I live in Northern Colorado. I teach at Colorado State University. That's what brought us here. We have a daughter. And so a lot of the book also has to do with mothering and um, questions that I have about the canon of environmental literature and why so frequently I don't see questions of parenthood and motherhood in particular directly engaged with conversations about environment and um, and why I think that that might be a major omission. And since you are listening and not seeing me, I will also add that I am African-American and uh, many of the questions that the book goes through um, have to do with what it means to be a black person living in a predominantly white space, making decisions about what my yard looks like <laughs> and um, and also who lives in my house and and what we're doing in the world. And so all those intersections end up showing up throughout the book. It's it, it's a wonderful book. And, and I, I I spoke beforehand that I'm not quite through it yet. But I've already bought three copies, <laughs> and that's how much I'm enjoying it. Um, I, I guess, is it a spoiler alert if I ask you what the current progress is on your prairie project? I don't think it's a spoiler okay. alert. I, I think you know, gardens are such changeable beasts that where it is now and where it'll be next year will be. Um, different. There's a big chunk of the book that's dedicated to a particular plot in our yard that my family calls the Prairie Project. And it was um, about a thousand square feet of turf that was just bad. You know, it was just it was just turf and thistle and dandelion and creeping Charlie and crabgrass and um not useful to pretty much anyone. And um, so we pulled that sod in October of 2019. Um, that was a, a quite, a, speaking of le- learning curves and adventure, I made, a, I made a series of bad decisions about the timing of um, pulling the sod and getting the replacement soil, et cetera, that um, brought us all together in the end. But (laughs) there were were some challenges. And then I planted it out in June of 2020. And so by the end of the book, I'm describing this project, but it was still kind of in its infancy, that particular thing. This year, we had a record amount of rain, and it's also the fourth year of the garden. And so it is thick and lush. There's one plant that was supposed to be a dwarf rabbit brush. There is nothing dwarf about this rabbit brush. It is giant. And so I need to think about that. And the milkweed has really uh, exploded in that area. There's some flowers throughout it that are probably 13 feet tall. And, um, and so I had to the other day actually kind of weave some rope through the sunflowers and milkweed to kind of help stand it up because otherwise you couldn't walk on the pathway. It was just so completely um, overrun, like some sort of mythic 
fable land, which is strange <laughs> in Colorado because we're so arid. We're just not used to having a tropical jungle forest yard. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a little what, what it's like this year. So yeah. it's kind of exciting. It, it's such a learning curve, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And Tom and I have this conversation all the time because we'll be looking at a plant that's supposed to get three foot tall and we'll see it six foot tall. And it's it's maybe it's getting way better conditions than what it's used to. You may mm-hmm. be taking mm-hmm. such great care of these plants that they're so happy that it's like oh we can <laughs> oh yeah we have yeah. room to grow to stretch out yeah <laughs> <and all that. laughs> so it's we we find that all the time yeah can i ask you what species of milkweed you have in in your garden i have a few kinds the one that has really um flourished in that spot is showy milkweed and then i've got some narrow leaf milkweed and um one the the official name of which I can't remember, but it's got an orange flower but, and but, um butterfly weed. Maybe. Okay. Yes. Yes. And uh there is one other that is kind of native to the kind of Colorado eastern mm-hmm. section of Colorado that also is here but the yeah. showy is being very showy the yeah. narrow leaf hasn't flowered out yet it usually flowers out later in the season um around september or so and so it's probably about to do its thing yeah some different ones than we're used to here on the east yeah. coast that's for sure that's why i wanted you to list them out because i always love hearing <laughs> mm-hmm. some of the, the different stuff yeah. that people get to experience and have you gotten your monarch caterpillars or chrysalises yet I haven't seen any oh, okay. chrysalises. I I'm always really careful to check because when uh, when I cut it back, I have heard that cutting back the milkweed is useful because the caterpillars like new growth. Um, so it's useful to me because it's so big right now, but also better for the caterpillars. But so when I do the cutting, I really try and make sure that there's nothing on it. And I haven't seen any. I've only seen a couple monarchs in the yard at all this year, which is always really sad. We've had a lot of rain, like I say, so I don't know how that's impacting the migration. We, uh, I know when we first planted it in our yard, it took us two or three years before we started to see monarchs or caterpillars. It was, we we had an instance where my wife was picking out the, the, the seedlings that were coming up from it overseeding, and she was bare rooting them and taking them into work and, and handing them out to coworkers. She brought them in the house and realized there was a caterpillar on one of the ones that, that she pulled out. So she babied this thing. It made a chrysalis. It was like she raised her own baby, and we brought it outside after it hatched, and, and she put it on the milkweed plant, and a bird came down and swooped and got, got it immediately. After all that, it was – we were taking pictures. It was like we just brought a baby home from the hospital, and then bird just swooped down and got it right away. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. I mean, it is the cycle of life, it but is. wow, that's hard. <laughs> I know. I know. If if So if I could ask, what inspired you to write about this process, and who were you hoping that it would resonate with? I, I love the fact that it's told from the perspective of a mother, and, and Tom can attest for this that we had done an episode probably a year and a half ago uh, called Women in Ecology where we brought some of our peers on to discuss some of their experiences in the industry. And it was so eye-opening for us when they started having the conversation about, well, they don't make women's clothes for this 
because mm-hmm. like we had to buy men's clothes mm-hmm. and they're like try being pregnant and and doing this you know and yep. it's you know it's obviously <laughs> it it it's something i hadn't thought about but it made us really stop and rethink everything so that's kind of what this book is is helping me do and it's i'm just curious who who you thought your end who the person you thought would be reading this book and and why this particular journey was fascinating for you to dive into that's a great question and my answer by the end of the book uh, of you know writing and revising this book is a very different answer than the answer at the beginning of the process um i think in the beginning of the process i was maybe more aligned with uh, the dominant narrative that I receive in my training. And throughout the book, I really talk about my training. I think there's a, a lot of that sort of confirmation bias that happens or um, just we know what we were taught and we see what we've been told to look for. And um, and so what I knew was that I, in my ed- education process, except for the places where I sort of actively sought otherwise I I didn't see people of color and um and I didn't see many women who were mothers um speaking about a- active environmental engagement and I I have a lot of explanations for why that is but in the beginning of writing the story um I was actively pushing against that in a um, maybe uh, earlier versions of this, this book were maybe more argumentative, like, Hey, I'm here, you know, like, it was this like kind of demanding kind of way. Um, and over time I got tired of that stance and I am imagined that readers would get tired <laughs> of reading um, with that kind of combative defensive thing. And um, and I shifted my idea of who I was writing for um, to the people who I knew were out there um, who also have felt these absences and would be excited to see the, a story that resonated with them or reflected some aspect of their life um, on the page. And so I shifted to a kind of more communal, loving, um, celebratory stance, I think, over the course of revising this book, which is, I hope, what you feel now um, in this process. And um, there is a little bit of like, if somebody doesn't believe that I should be there, no amount of my insisting, like, I should be here. It's going to change this person's <laughs> mind. Right. Um, so that was wasted energy. Uh, the other thing that I, I feel is important to add is that a lot of this book was written in 2020. Um, 
which means that I was home and I was seeing more uh, as many of us were during that time, kind of uh, observing more questions of environmental justice and social justice, but also just because more of us were home, we were noticing the the birds and the insects and the plants that were around us in ways that that um, we hadn't. And so the the time in which I was writing the book also shifted the tone in which I was writing the book because that sort of patience uh, that came with understanding that moving slowly and looking closely was so deeply rewarding that built into the process of writing the book as well. I I completely understand what that for if let's say if we were having this conversation four years ago, I, I think it would have been a completely different conversation. COVID for me, we started this podcast two weeks before COVID hit, before the lockdown. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, I, I, you know, because of COVID, this this podcast has grown. I've become a birder. We've, <laughs> a lot of our trips are based on nat, uh, nature-based things. And it's, and I'm in the industry and I just didn't have that same connection that I feel I have because of that experience. In many ways, it was a very eye-opening experience, uh, because of COVID, what it forced us to do. Um, and I'm kind of thankful that the path that we're on is because of that. Mm-hmm. Did did you did you ever think or realize that your book would be as important as it is to in the eco- ecology circle? Like I kind of – I would put this, you know, as far as – there's there's many books that you can say are required reading if if you're in environmental or ecology circles, but I'll put this one with breeding sweetgrass and Sand County Almanac because it's not all it's it's more that emotional it speaks on an emotional connection, but each does it in their own way that many books don't they're factual but they don't make you feel. I feel deeply honored to be put in the company of those two books, which I find such beautiful, important, instructive books. Um, And I mean, so maybe the short answer to that question is, sure, that would be a goal to walk alongside Robin Walkimer and Aldo Leopold, like those um, such wonderful ways of being and seeing, understanding reciprocity, understanding the patience that it takes to rebuild a landscape. They were definitely writers, thinkers, and doers whose um ideas I had in mind while I was writing, I guess I, I want my work to reach as broadly. I mean, I say this in the book, like I want, if I build a space of welcome, I want its reach to be wide. And so I am excited if in the world of ecology, the that this is a space where the book um, finds finds a home. Did you when when you were finishing the book? Did you feel that you had written something special? Like I don't know. Like for your process, like through having written multiple books, like is it always the same feeling when you're done? Was 
was one of them more special than another? Did you have like when you were done, you're like, I feel good about this one? Like I'm assuming before you put something out, you feel good about it. But did you feel different about this one? I did feel differently about this one. I I train primarily as a poet. And so four of my books are collections of my own poetry. I have three other uh, anthologies that I edited or had a role in editing. Um, so in in that way, this book is different because it's primarily a prose narrative. I do weave poems throughout the collection because that's another way of seeing. And I think that that's a way in which Soil is a different book than any other book that I've written because it integrates prose and poetry and visual art as well, because throughout the book, there are photographic images that either the like photos taken in the garden by my daughter or our friend Mary Ellen, who we then shared with a photographic artist named Dion Lee, who made these incredible um, pho- photogram images. There's also clippings from the yard, which I sent to Dion and she made these gorgeous images from them. I wanted that sense as readers went through the book, if they didn't know what they were looking for, I wanted them to stay in the book and not go to Google. And so from early on in the book, you have these images and I just wanted trust from the reader that there would be enough uh, guidance for what it was that they were looking at or reading about that they could just keep reading in the book. Um, and so one of the things that felt very different about this book was that intersection of multiple kinds of ways of knowing and understanding and um, describing this landscape that I hadn't had, I hadn't done that kind of multimedia work in the audio book. You mentioned there's a moment where you get to hear song, my daughter and I singing. And so that's the kind of value added bit that you get in the audio book. There's also maps in the, in the book. And so that's one way when the sort of whole thing came together, I was like, this is, this is a rich kind of intertextual, um, multi-layered diverse landscape inside this book which felt different than anything else I'd done. I was surprised because I had the audiobook first and I love that that you can hear you and your daughter singing or there's bits of music and then I got the book and I was like oh I, I was missing all of this as well but I love that each one was their own experience in a multimedia way so mm-hmm. yeah so I feel like maybe I, we skipped forward a little bit should we go oh, we, back? We sure we did. should go back. Sorry, I told you we would get sidetracked. <laughs> but we we really wanted to dive into how you were inspired to connect with nature. Um, was it something that happened through childhood, or was it something you came into as an adult? Um, yeah, we just want to know where where that inspiration came from. Oh, Tom, with the easy question. <laughs> <laughs> That's like what I don't, you know, I feel like um I I do have one straightforward answer to this question to me is that the house I grew up in where I spent the the majority of my childhood was really like this epitome of what like uh, environmental science people call an ecotone, like this this liminal yeah. space between two kinds of um, 
zones of life. And so if you walked out my front door in this um, Orange County planned community home, my front door, it was like terrorist streets and really, really rigidly designed every fourth house looks the same kind of structure. You couldn't leave your garage door open for more than four hours, like a really rigid human built environment. But if you walked out my back door, it was essentially virgin landscape. There was like, it hadn't been touched and um, which was bizarre in that kind of Southern California place, right? Like most of the outdoor spaces are really highly um, cultivated and, and tended and cared for, even if they're supposed to be kind of natural preserves, but this was just like a wild hillside um, with caves and canyons. And I've learned how to watch out for rattlesnakes when I was walking through the sage. And so I had this kind of one version of untrammeled, wild, open space. And then I had um, this very, very human built space. And then my parents in this little in-between space of our home made these radically progressive, now that I think about it, decisions in the 1970s to do a low water, uh, often native or um, or appropriate for California climate um, landscaping um, in our yard. And so I had like all of that was available to me and I didn't know any different, you know? And so when it came for me to start writing the language from which I was drawing was sometimes the language about the front door and the people stuff. And sometimes the language about the back door or sometimes this kind of in between of how, uh, how a family um, navigates that and builds some sort of continuity in it. That was just my, that was just the well that my stories and my language choices were drawing from. And then I moved to the East Coast. I had lived always in the American West or Midwest until I was 24, I guess. And I moved to the East Coast where I stayed for 11 years. And it's different over there. You have different birds. Your trees are different. Your grass is different. Like everything is different. And the air feels different. And so I had to spend a lot of time just figuring out what was different, why I felt different, why I kept wanting to write about the West, even though I was in a, it's pretty over there. The East Coast is lovely, you know, but like, I was like, I don't want to write about this. <laughs> I want to write about something else. Um, So I think I it was that just really thinking about starting to pay attention then as, as I was training as a writer to what I was paying attention to in the world. And a mm-hmm. lot of it, a lot of it had to do with environment and what grew around me. That's amazing for the 70s that your parents were were doing that for Waterwise. That's I mean, we we're still struggling with people not fully embracing that <laughs> that concept today and to go back at that time. That's that's really progressive. I know, right? And I don't think I even I don't think I realized it, which is the thing about uh, often, right? The, the worlds in which we grow up, that's just normal, you know? And then I'm like, oh wait, no, that was not normal. (laughs) (laughs) 
like drip irrigation in um, in a home in 1975. Wow. Like who oh. was doing that? My dad. That's that's fantastic. That's fantastic. We we have the talk with with listeners all the time about when you're starting to venture into native plants, maybe you know, not everyone's ready for for that or that look and maybe start in the backyard and let the backyard be a little more wild and keep the front yard maybe mm-hmm. a little nicer at first just to to keep the neighbors happy and slowly have that conversation and progress, but it's it's interesting that that's a conversation we're having today, but here here 50 years ago that that's just that amazes me. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I mean, I do write about this a little bit in soil. It was not a simple decision, as it turns out, that to to do that took time. It takes time. It takes patience. You don't just like go to the box store and pick up whatever and throw it in the ground. You have to decide what's gonna work with certain light and things. And so, mm-hmm. it, my parents. The front yard took longer to put in place than the neighborhood association um, approved of. And so there was conflict around their decision to take it slow and and make make those choices. But and also things can often take longer to come in. Right. I think a lot of native plants take a while to reach their pretty phase. They go through a gawky phase that's a lot longer <laughs> than a lot of plants that are cultivated for American show gardens. And so, you know, that kind of explaining to your neighbors, just wait in three years, this is going to look fantastic, but it's hard to trust that for me still I this year you were asking what the state of the yard is now my big project this year we took all the rest of the Kentucky bluegrass out from every place else that it was in in the yard but my daughter still wanted a lawn because she's a kid and she wants a lawn so I just uh, exchanged the Kentucky bluegrass for buffalo grass and blue grandma grass which meant that we had it it grows so slowly, the buffalo grass. So we had like a solid month and a half of just dirt. Like it just looked like dirt. And um, and then like the weeds were like, hey, here I am. You know, like it was just like, mm-hmm. and I had just published this book about creating this beautiful garden. And I was like, people are going to drive by and laugh, you know, because <laughs> the book's bad now it looks gorgeous right but in in may and june it looked trashy like really not good right um and i just had to i just had to believe that it was gonna be okay no it's we even for people in the industry when we sell seed mixes we have to have those conversations because we're like some things are going to come up early and it's like succession you'll see those things early and they're not going to stay forever but some Mm -hmm. of the things you really want to see it's going to take two, three, four years before that meadow really matures enough to where you're right. It goes through that awkward gangly stage and then you have to, before it matures to where you get what you were hoping for. It's just the patience for that, which is hard sometimes, <laughs> mm-hmm. especially when people are, are looking at it every day. Like yeah. that's, <laughs> that's where it gets, it's like, no, it's trust me. Like yeah. it, it, it will transform. Do you think, and I want to mention, cause you, you mentioned it, in your book about dealing with the HOA, but before, because I, I don't want to forget to mention it, but 
having lived in a lot of places throughout the country and, and the world, do you think nature is one thing that helped keep you grounded? Like you mentioned that, yeah, from the West Coast and East Coast, it's different birds, different grasses. Do you think that was a constant for you, having like that experience growing up and just seeing that, that, that kind of helped make more places feel like home? I think so. I think learning to talk to the trees and look to trees and look for flowers. I like going, I travel a lot. um, And I like seeing what the progression of growth is in springtime. As I go different places, we're pretty high in both latitude and altitude here. So where I am in Colorado, it's the same latitude as New York, which is a relatively high latitude, but it's, um, we're at 5,000 feet. And so, um, it's significantly cooler. I think that that means like that translates to about four and a half degrees of temperature difference, which is significant as we know (laughs) um so i can go in may to new york and like they've got all kinds of things are already in bloom that we we aren't on daffodils yet you know we're just still on the crocuses or they're all ready to their irises and like we're just on crocuses you know (laughs) so like that kind of um sense of of comparison, I guess, of where other places are in their season and in their growing season and in their blooming processes in comparison to the places I call home um, helps helps ground me. Yes, that's uh, and I've, I've mentioned this before in the podcast. My wife is from Poland and she grew up on a, a small farm during communist Poland and her connection with nature is very different than mine. And I feel like she has a deeper connection than I even though I want to have that connection. She inherently has it. I came home the other day from work, and she was laying in the middle of the backyard, just like on her back, arms and legs out. And I walked out. I was like, "What you doing?" And she's like, "I'm I'm having a conversation with nature." I'm like, "Okay, are you actually talking?" She goes, "No, I'm just transferring my energy right now. Just I'm good, <laughs> you know." And it was like, "Yeah, I I get it, but I probably not something I maybe would have done." You know, and it was just having that feeling. She just, I don't know. Everyone has it in a different way, and everyone's mm-hmm. in different parts of her journey. I just thought that was a very u- unique way for her to interact with nature and for her to feel at home. Like, I know when yeah. she feels homesick, that's what she kind of does. Like, when she thinks about Poland, she'll be like, okay, I can, you know, these things remind me of home. That's beautiful. I love that idea too, which, which I think about a lot of how we communicate this idea that you put forward, like, oh, are you communicating? Are you actually talking? Are you actually talking out loud um, versus my, like this idea that a lot of communicate, a lot of communication happens non-verbally um and a lot of communication definitely happens not in english and so like i like to think a lot when i'm out there in my yard about how i'm communicating with the other living beings that are around me um 
that not being always dependent on speaking English, <laughs> um, that, that to, to, to hold a tree, to touch a tree, to water things, to, um, prune things as they need them. I do a lot of, when I do pruning, I, I'm often talking to the, to the plants I'm pruning kind of like almost like we might, I don't have a, I don't have a, domesticated pet but like I imagine if I had like a dog or something where you're like clipping their toenails or cutting their hair and they're not so into it but you're like just talking them through why it is that this is you know this is honestly you're going to be a lot happier you're going to have fewer mats and etc and like that I often find myself doing that when I'm when I'm doing the work of of pruning and managing out there that feels sometimes necessary for 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 me so I can walk through but sometimes it is in fact better for the plants and we don't have we've eradicated many of the other beings who would be doing that work um elsewhere and so since there are no bison (laughs) here anymore, right? What is it that I can do to sort of replace the role that the bison would play in the sunflower stands? Like how can I kind of recreate that energy um, in that kind of communication? And and that's why it's so important to have different voices in in these conversations because if you're, you're only hearing the same voice over and over, you're, you're not expanding. You're not seeing a different point of view. You're not getting different experiences. And had I not had that conversation, had I come home a half an hour later and not seen my wife do that, maybe I wouldn't have ever had that idea or thought or that connection. And that's why I feel that your book is so important because it's coming from a perspective that is not often heard in our industry uh, from an African-American mm-hmm. woman, from a wife, from a mother. And and those are voices you don't hear, but they're just as important, if not more important because we don't hear them it's so i don't want to say shield it but it's just we don't get those those voices coming through very often yeah go ahead Tom. oh i was gonna say something i'll even add to that um is i was paging through an industry uh magazine the other day and uh there's an article i read by a really esteemed like uh i don't want garden writer plant writer i guess and um fairly short but it was about how the, like the myth of how native plants are better for pollinators is kind of what it was about and i just left it on fran's desk and then didn't really say anything just want to see what he thought and then i wasn't at my desk when fran read it and he just wrote this just guy just sounds out of touch but it was basically saying oh you zinnias are great for pollinators and so is budley and all this other stuff and it was like he just you could just tell he didn't get it he, he was looking at it through the lens of this plant is in the garden. Oh, and it can help. Poll- it looks beautiful. Oh, maybe it helps pollinators too. And that was that was it. That was the end of the story for him. And and I, I kind of felt bad because, all right, we we keep saying you have to have patience and and be kind and let everyone take that journey themselves. And he just sounded like an angry, angry man. And and it was just, it was. You know, and I could be reading into this because this is someone that has made a career off of introducing plant material, and I felt like, oh, well, it's hurting his his wallet, and he's showing a little anger here, and it's and he, I kind of felt like he very outwardly published his ignorance towards 
towards he was mm-hmm. he was approaching it as a gardener and not an environmentalist and that's fine not everyone yeah. is an environmentalist you have the journey it just hit the voice that he chose to write the article wasn't very yeah certain. and that was um i guess part of what i was trying to get at is like he's coming at it from one angle and saying oh uh, thinking about pollinators from an ecosystem services standpoint but that's not the only ecosystem service that native plants can play that's not the only role they play in the uh the only interactions they need with wildlife there's so many other interactions that are really important um like being eaten is one of them not just attracting because <laughs> you have nectar uh you need the caterpillars to eat you too um but then like the whole foraging aspect and how this is can be food for us as well and then uh just we can get I mean, I'm going to say we. I'm saying Fran and I can kind of get blind because we're working at a native plant nursery where our goal is to sell native plants to uh, to restoration projects. So that's our primary lens. But even we can be blind to some of the other uses. So that's, yeah, like what Fran was saying, it's really important to have all these voices come together because there are so many different reasons why nature and ecosystems and native plants are important. And we need to at least hear all those reasons. Yeah. We can't just – we can have our favorites, but uh, – And our voice isn't going to reach everyone. We don't speak to everyone. Um, you know, that's why it's important to have a, a lot of voices. I have, I have two thoughts as a result of what you're talking about. One, just like a quick response is like all of those plants that you mentioned, which are not necessarily native plants – can be beneficial for some pollinators, right? Like, so some pollinators will come there. But the thing that's interesting to me about choosing native plants is the diversity of pollinators that I now see here, that I'm not just seeing European honeybees and swallowtails. I'm seeing, like, so many kinds of bees and flies and things that I had not... um, that I really hadn't witnessed before. And so that kind of variety that there's certain kinds of creatures who are more interested in. And then the other thing that I find fascinating really about many of these native plants is the ways that for me, they became portals into history Mm -hmm. that I came to understand something about this place that I've decided to make my home um, as I researched the plants and found out what lived here. I didn't know before writing this book. I really didn't know before writing this book that sunflowers were a native North American species because I think of sunflowers as those Russian sunflowers or the kind of sunflowers in Van Gogh or something like that. So I thought that they were European. I didn't realize that they were taken from North America, exported to Europe, and then oftentimes brought back and rehybridized here with our American species. So those kinds of ways that the native plants here have taught me things about uh, trade and um, and connections with others about indigenous um, foodways and and thought processes and um, just what this space I want to call home might have looked like. 250 years ago all of that to me it feels like one of the really exciting rewards of um of dealing with native plants but even you know north america has such a robust 
native plant heritage really um that i just i just learned today um from reading rebecca solnit's book orwell's roses which is a beautiful book i would like absolutely recommend i just learned in reading that that the dahlia was originally a plant from mexico central america mm-hmm. and then was taken to europe like hybridized, yeah. renamed and brought back. So I really was thinking that my dahlias were not a native species that I planted in my yard, but in fact, they are a native North American species. Those particular hy- hybrids that I have may not be, but that to me, just, I just feel when I do this work with that kind of slightly more conscious way um, of thinking about it, that I end up Back to your point, Fran, feeling more grounded, feeling more located in this place I call home over a really long haul. Like, so I'm thinking about it way back into the past and I'm thinking about the ways that, that the things that, that we plant in our yard will make a difference towards what kind of future we have to. Stay tuned for more of the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast. Presented by Pinelands Nursery. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast. Presented by Pinelands Nursery. History is so important and so much of that is lost. I feel to a certain extent it's almost like wondering how the pyramids were built when – you think about how indigenous cultures use some of these native plants and how it's been lost or how the government chose to – we had a really interesting talk with, with Sam Thayer about the heritage of foraging. Oh, yeah. Um, and he was like, if you don't mind, let's let's get real political yeah. about this mm-hmm. and how the government yeah, – you can't talk about it honestly without getting political <laughs> yeah. about it, it. Exactly, and it's part of the conversation, but it's – so much of that has been lost, and that was his point that even when you go to some of these cultures, they're, they're not sure anymore. Uh, and it's such a sad thing. So researching and finding the history and bringing these things back and reconnecting is is in a way like something that – like more feeling at uh, being a part of it rather than being – you know, so many people think it's us and then there's nature, <laughs> you know, right. out there instead of we're all an integral part of nature together. We're part of that community. Yeah, I mean, so I don't grow many um, things that are considered vegetable garden. They, you know, I always have some tomatoes. I try some peas. Um, but different summers, I will have more. This summer, I did not have very much. But I did walk out just the other day. I was like, actually... I have a grocery store out here, right? Because I planted all these native plants. Like we don't have to go wanting. A lot of these tubers can be uh, used as food. A lot of the leaves or the flowers could be like the, the tips of my spruce tree. Like all of these things that are just here in my not particularly big yard could sustain my family for quite some time. And so part of what I I worked on as I was writing soil was reframing my thought process um, 
away from a homogenized thought process that thought that the only way that I could access food is by growing carrots and onions. And to, you know, I've got wild onion all over this yard, right? And I've got um, a lot uh, that could be used in this, in these sustaining kind of ways. So um, I feel like one of the exciting possibilities of gardening and the way that my family has chosen to garden is the way that it has helped us reframe our ideas about beauty, utility, and connection. And that I often end up having to do things in this garden that may not have been considered beautiful in a particular version of what a garden looks like. But as I grow patience and, and also shift my perspective, I understand it's incredible, complex um, beauty and utility in super exciting ways. That's wonderful. I, I just learned about – side note about eating spruce tips through mm, yeah. Alexis Nicole – I don't know if you if you do social media. She goes by the Black Forager on on uh, Instagram. She's and, fantastic. Yeah, she's incredible. <laughs> she's incredible. But um, as I was reading the book, and you may have meant it this way, or maybe it just happened that way. I keep looking at your meadow project as a metaphor for diversity and equity. Absolutely. In in life. And it just it, it became really obvious to me as I kept going. And I'm like, I don't know if this was intended on purpose or if that's just how it wove together, but it you can't help but to see the similarities and and what works and what doesn't work or maybe how it should be. Absolutely. I mean when I say that this sort of redefining or widening the lens of what is beautiful and what is allowed to grow and where when I'm the my family is the only all black family in our neighborhood. And we're also, you know, so our very presence is redefining um, some ideas about what, what things are supposed to look like and, and where they're supposed to show up. And then we're making these decisions in our yard also, which are both factually different um, than the decisions that other people are making and also metaphorically um, different. Yeah. So we, I know I mentioned earlier HOA and I, you had talked about uh, being in an HOA at the start of this, as, as your meadow progresses or your prairie progresses, has that become an issue in your HOA at all? Oh, it's the opposite, actually. Okay. When when I started the project, I actually kind of started small because our HOA had rules on the books saying that there couldn't be um, uh, an un, unmanageable and um, what was some of the other language? It had to be a... Um, uh, I'm sorry, I can't remember what the actual language was, but essentially it's like, you should just you should look right, <laughs> right? You should sort yeah. of, um, ha- uh, there were idea questions about height, um, the height of grass and um, uh, aesthetic appeal, et cetera. And so at first I just started with one very small um, 
square that I made out of old railroad tiles um, that were in the backyard. And I just made a square with these railroad tiles, probably four by four. Right. And, and smothered the, the turf there and put in a wildflower seed packet, you know, in the fall, we'll just see what comes up in the spring. I don't tend to do that anymore. Cause you just don't, I don't know what's in those packets. Um, and often like what ends up taking off is actually not something that I'm going to want in Colorado. Right. It's like not necessarily specific for my place. Um, but that was how I started it. And then I had some, some, another patch of sunflowers in a place that was just like dead grass and that was it. Um, and I kind of knew that if I started small and kept creeping larger, that by the time they like caught up to what I was doing, I just trusted that the HOA would have caught up to why as well, because we live in Colorado. There are water scarcity issues. There's all more, more and more conversation about supporting our local pollinators, et cetera. I just, I just trusted that this was the right thing to do and that we, I could start small and go big. I also started small just because I do most of this myself. And so it was just what I was capable of doing, um, in terms of time and finances, right? Start small, grow. Over the time, um, we've been here for 10 years now. The HOA has shifted those rules. Wow. The state of Colorado has a ballot measure right now that will say that HOAs cannot tell you that you cannot have mm. water wise, um, gardening methods, right? And so like a statewide question about whether or not this is the proper thing for HOAs to have authority over. And then our city has, uh, an incentive program now. In fact, we had to, you, we had to delay our conversation because we were scheduled for yesterday. And that was the day that my zero scape incentive program person was going to come by and make sure oh, yeah. that this Buffalo grass <laughs> project was actually, um, what I said it was. And so the city is incentivized thing, this kind of work at this point. And so my faith in the beginning that if I started slowly and got larger, the community would catch up has been realized. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. How did the meeting go yesterday? It went great. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> they really liked it. <laughs> so I, I wanted to touch a little bit on, on equity in nature. And it, for me, it always feels weird having these conversations as a as a white male. But it's it's important to have these conversations. And I was just shocked to learn the other day while I was researching for for this episode of the podcast, I was reading other reviews on soil, and someone had mentioned that in Texas, there's I can't remember what part of Texas, but if you have equity in your curriculum, they cut funding. Because they don't want it taught, and that shocked me. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a state. They yeah. just they okay. just had like a state measure, a state, state okay. bill. But yeah, yeah, it's a statewide issue. Texas, Tennessee, and Florida are places where those are now like there's laws about not being able to talk about equity, about issues of, um, of you know the. Those parts of our historical stories that are are not particularly flattering to the white American project um, because they are about um, the unequal burden of hardship that people of color in this country have often had to face. Um, and for me, there's no there's no real way to talk about 
the land in any part of America, but certainly not the American West, <laughs> without thinking about questions of uh, ec- equity, questions of violence and brutality, of uh, rewriting, uh, reshaping um, the courses of nature. But also, here's the thing, there's no way to make the necessary changes that we are all going to have to make in order to keep this planet livable (laughs) without confronting, engaging with, absorbing, and finding new solutions for the decisions that have been made in our past. Right. And so throughout soil, I'm often like just running up against these kinds of moments of terror or trauma or grief um, and trying to figure out how to digest them and continue to move forward. And the garden gives me a space for that. It gives me metaphors for that. Um in the sense that soil itself, there's no, there's no way for soil to be viable without a certain amount of violence and death and decomposition and awfulness. Like, but but true soil figures out how to absorb that and make that something new and beautiful and fertile. So, like, that's again one of these kind of factual slash metaphorical yeah. things about this process. Yeah. I- Oh, definitely, and it's when you think of soil as something that's living, where dirt is something that's not, and it's mm-hmm. and all the things that have to happen. It, it's one of those parts of the wheel, like you can say you need you need the sun, you need the plants to absorb the energy, but without the soil, nothing's nothing's growing for any of that. It doesn't matter, and it's uh, I I found that as a very fitting title for the book, which which I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, it's you know, and I know it, it. It may sound grandiose to sit here and plan like, how do we fix this? But like, what are some of the things that that can be done to help in in having these conversations about equity? I feel like insisting your. I mean, you said something when you brought the question up. I feel a little awkward as a white man. No, no, like make the space right. Like the, you, you're making the space is incredibly important because of the people who are listening to you, the people who are coming to speak with you and listen to you means that the reach that my story has makes new kinds of connections that it might not otherwise, that somebody might not pick up a book because Black Mother is in the title, but after you've talked about the book and the ways that that you're understanding it and um, and kind of absorbing and integrating the information makes it, oh, there is something in here also for me. So I think that that's, that that's it for me, really, is that all of us take up the charge and and do this work knowing that sometimes it's going to be awkward and difficult and uncomfortable because really what is it that any of us do in our lives that doesn't that's worthwhile that doesn't have some element of discomfort and awkwardness there's nothing there's nothing that's worthwhile that doesn't have that thank you it is and you write about it so well 
is it was it hard for you to do? As you mentioned earlier, there's so many different voices that you could take to to tell that story. How difficult was it for you to was it was it uh, obviously it was important to you to write about it. Was it hard to write about? It was so hard. It was so hard um, on a practical sense because I was writing it a lot of it during 2020 when I was the one responsible for overseeing my fourth and fifth grade daughter's education, which was crazy to to be trying to do that and, you know, and work on a book at the same time. Um, so there's just like practically thinking about how to do that and um, it, circling way, way back to one of your questions about like why it felt important um, for me to write about motherhood is that I realized in the pro- that process, like, why don't I, why don't I read that much of this kind of literature where somebody's like trying to juggle writing about my like wrapped incredible love affair with the greater than human world and like oh I have to do the dishes now and make dinner and the laundry right like why don't I see that because that's actually the life that a lot of us have right a lot of us have that sort of um divided attention and don't get the the like privilege of just having a month by ourselves in the wilderness and so i Living that made me feel it necessary to write that truth into the book. But that that's a that was also difficult. Like then that's like intellectually difficult. How do I write something that I don't have much record of seeing elsewhere in the literature? How do I even construct it? What are the sentences I use? What are the details that I have um, so that people can experience the world that's inside my house as well as outside my house? So um, so this is in many ways and for several reasons, the hardest book that I've ever written. And then I am also was confronting a lot of racialized trauma that um that I was experiencing or that my family was experiencing. And so writing those stories um and being really honest with my white friends about how their responses to a lot of those situations were often not helpful and sometimes just hurtful, even when these are people who have my best interest at heart like but there's no I had a lot of conversations actually in the process of writing I would go on walks with friends and things and be like I don't you know I don't want I don't want you to feel bad but I need to be honest and and my friends would say yes you need to be honest and I need to know the truth right and so that sort of conversation the trust Again, that I'm writing to readers who want to build a better world. That's what I just had to lean into in the end. I'm just the people who are going to pick up this book want to build a sustainable, loving, welcoming world. And sometimes the instruction for how to do that is going to hit hard. Um, And sometimes that's that's what we need. And and I appreciate that. And those conversations are all. You know, I appreciate your honesty in having those conversations because those conversations aren't easy a lot of the times. It, it could have been just as easy to say, I'm not going to deal with it, whatever, and, and walk mm-hmm. away. And it's, and I think sometimes that's a very 
male thing, like to walk away and just say whatever. And I, I know, again, I'm going to mention my wife. She was just sharing with me a conversation she had. She started school, and uh, one of her coworkers that she's been working with for a long time, she's a teacher, uh, started transitioning over the summer. And mm-hmm. she wasn't aware that this was going to happen. So she had a talk with her yesterday and say, I, I love you, and just this is hard because I, I know this person, and I'm in mourning that this person kind of exists and doesn't exist anymore. But I mm-hmm. want to let you know I'm on your side, and I hope you're doing well, and I'm working through this. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I don't know that I, I would have done that. And, I, like, and they had a very, very special moment because of this and it's like wow i i hope that one day i i can do that or i hope that i would have that conversation in the same space that's such a beautiful and wise way of understanding how we mourn those kinds of changes sometimes that how and why you know what it is that we're mourning or when we get angry or um that's really wonderful i i <laughs> i ended up I have a lot of students who are you know, gender non-binary or are transitioning, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I feel along with your wife, like it's, it's an interesting world to live in. Um, I, I found myself writing about the way that gender shows up in the world, right? In the greater than human world in soil. Um, um, and that was part of my way of processing it. And like just how frequently there are these living beings out there who are not just one gender, their whole life cycle. Right. And um, and so what that means to see varieties of gender expression as a natural facet of the world in which we live. Um, and so that kind of expansiveness, I think, again, like connecting deeply and thoughtfully with the greater than human world has helped me connect d- more deeply and more thoughtfully with humans. Yeah, and, and it's, you know, we can describe ourselves in many different ways. We all wear a lot of different hats and it's, you know, here we are in a podcast talking about plants and even though I work in a nursery where we grow plants, there's many days I don't get to deal or even see the plants. It's just part of the the everyday, and and we all have that in our lives. And there's many different ways you can describe yourself, but you've managed to kind of encapsulate all that in this book at the same time with because it's all important. I, I don't want to say with the the everyday and the the important. It's because it's all important because it's who we are, and it's just you just. It, you know, we we had a conversation in the office. Tom wasn't in here at the time that we we're having it, and, and someone mentioned, you know, if I were to say, picture this dog, and they started describing it, and I'm like, all right, and they're like, do you see it? I'm like, yeah. They're like, not everyone can see that, you know, not you know, you may, and not everyone thinks the same way. So even though you may have never have ever questioned your gender, there's people that constantly question it, and it's just your brain doesn't see that their brain does your brain sees the dog someone else's brain doesn't and it's just important to remember that when you're thinking about it. and it's easy to forget sometimes or or not understand but when you put it those those ways or that way but that and, and i kind of felt that's what was so important about the book is how you kind of included everything in there even i enjoyed the story about you 
you not picking on your husband for knowing the difference between a duck and a gull <laughs> because it's part of the learning process. It is. And it's, it's – you know. <laughs> Brand, Sorry. I feel like you would I love say that. Comeback, right? Like this New York, New York <laughs> yeah. City raised kid. He's like, I knew it wasn't a pigeon. Right? Like that's, the, that's the bird I'm familiar with, and and there's something, but there's a lot I don't know. Um, and I through the book, I I hoped to to inscribe my learning process in the book as well, so that you can see it's not like oh, I'm this sort of great authority on creating um a native and naturalized plant garden like i know all the things i'm learning the things uh you're i'm just like one step ahead (laughs) um uh maybe of the process yeah friend that was actually a really mature statement of you because i thought you would have said that like the picking on someone is part of the learning process as well (laughs) well it was was in the 70s and that's a part of part of my therapy for that is I've actually started writing about my childhood, but not for anyone else to see, just for my own things, to get it out, to have thoughts about it and think about it and remember it for what it was and put it on paper. And I'm like, did it really happen that way? How did this happen? Go through it. And I found that very therapeutic for myself just from a perspective standpoint because everyone's always trying to improve, and it's important to know who you are, where you came from, and where you're going. And that's part of my part of my process right now. So. One of the things I wanted to to ask is how do you do you talk to people who may um, disagree with your your point of view when you're when you're talking about native plants? Um, have you encountered that through your books and in any critiques or anything like that? Um, I guess I don't know that they've come to me directly (laughs) um and told me that i think the 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 biggest kind of conversation that i can remember that i had which was really ended up being a really beautiful conversation was somebody who said that there's a there's a statement that i made earlier in the book about john muir um who was the great great hero of the person i was speaking with and he heard me say that John Muir wasn't thinking about me like Mm -hmm. and wasn't thinking about me and honestly like actively in many ways didn't care (laughs) about me and he heard that at first as a provocation and he was very angry um and then sat with it and with what I had written about why I felt like this was an important fact to bring forward and began to understand how important it was to understand those of us who feel erased from or removed from um, some of this this literature, this policy, this way of thinking um, to understand this point of view and why it's really important to 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 broaden the perspectives um and so he was a professor and essentially he said that by the end of 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 reading the section and thinking about it it will change the way he thinks about what he teaches and how he teaches mm-hmm. so um so that sounds great to me um that that I can 
say something that's provocative, um, but that provocation actually lends to conversation, communication, and uh, a broadening of perspective. That's I'm I'm willing to make somebody mad for a short term if the long term <laughs> yeah. is that. Yeah. It's and it's I so I haven't read your book. Fran has raved about it and I'm it's on my list now to get to. But uh it's funny you brought up John Muir because it's something we've actually talked about here in uh probably in a similar topic that what he did was was so great for preserving land and making it uh, a public land, but public was of limited scope to him when he did that. Um, mm-hmm. And some of it was the time, but probably a lot of it was also his his personal feelings as well. So yeah, it's I'm really interested to read that passage now <laughs> when we get to it because it's a it's a really tricky thing to to wrap your head around, and it's a, he's a hero to so many people, like you like you were saying, but. And there's a lot of reasons why you should be. Yeah. Oh, but yeah. I don't think that we uh, I don't think it benefits anybody for a hero to be one dimensional and not mm-hmm. and for us not to interrogate um, flaws or flaws that are built out of character or time. Right. Uh, like, what good does that do? Yeah. And it's actually I I heard about some of that on another podcast that uh, I'm just looking back, it was from uh 2019 is when I, I heard it. it, but it was with uh, Dr. Carolyn Finney and um, talking about being on public land as uh, an African-American person. And um, and that was some of the things she brought up was how the public lands came about. It wasn't – it was public, but it wasn't meant for everyone in a sense. And um, and this was more about hunting than, than other things, but talking about how do you get more diversity and equity in outdoors uh, – outdoor anything outdoor nature gardening mm-hmm. all of that and um but with hunting specifics like well, why as a, a african-american person why would i want to go someplace where i know there's going to be a lot of white people with guns um was some one of the things she said and it's like that's a thought that passes through a lot of people's minds when they're thinking yeah it's for me but even there's no nothing keeping me out but why would i want to do that especially in the political climate and other things that were going on especially at that time so um, no, that was just a, so many times when we record, there's like little phrases that are, I don't want to say throwaway things, but not important to the, the overall interview that just throw, throw me back to something <laughs> I heard in this case four years ago. And, <laughs> so, and so many cultures yeah. celebrate nature in different ways and it's, yeah. it's being tolerant of that. Also, I know how, yeah. how I enjoy nature and how my neighbor enjoys nature are two different completely things, but one's not wrong it's just our different perspectives on how we enjoy sometimes it. they're wrong oh well that's true that's true they're, in their case they're not wrong but yeah no there's totally people where it's wrong <laughs> so i i knew this would happen i'm just looking at the time and i think maybe we only asked you half the questions that we wanted to ask you so but there's a couple that i i do want to just touch on real quick before we start to wrap it up is when was there an epiphany for you when you felt you found your voice in writing? It was there, or do you still feel you're trying to find your voice? Or was there a moment where you're like, you knew that you had found your voice and and what you were doing? Well, every book is a new process, and so now I'm finished with this book, and I'm back to staring at blank pages and like, what? What am I even? <laughs> um, but with this book, I think there there was a 
point at which I understood the sort of arc of the story um, and how to tell the story in a way that would, would be engaging and people would want to follow along. And then I could, you know, stick the information, like how deeply you bury an iris bulb versus a crocus bulb and um, how, how to um, sow sunflower seeds and things like that. And what the nutritional value of a dandelion is like, I could get all of that information in with, story. And so once I figured that out, I, I, I just felt like the train had left the station and we were, <laughs> we were good. Awesome. Um, to, to start to wrap it up for, for a listener that may be listening and is struggling to find their place in nature, what advice would you give to someone that's, that's looking to connect, but is, is having trouble or, or any advice or any tips that you may have? Yeah. And I think my advice would be very much like my own project is to start small. Um, You can have a vision of what you want it all to look like by the end, but the likelihood, if you don't know what you're doing, of your being able to successfully and therefore positively bring that vision to fruition if you try to do the whole thing at once is is not possible. So start small. And I feel like that is the case with these conversations around diversity and equity. It's the case around gardening. It's the case around any of it. Just start small with one person, one species, one set of pots on your patio um, and go from there as you have success and keep building on that. Awesome. So we, we always end with the same question, and it's a simple question, but most find it the hardest question to answer. What is your favorite native plant? I do not find that hard to answer. Oh, okay. It is the Nettles Larkspur. Ooh. I love the Nettles Larkspur. It's a teeny tiny little delphinium type plant. Um, not very, maybe the size of a, the, each flower is maybe the size of a dime. And it comes back year after year. I don't even really know how my nettle Larkspur <laughs> got into my rock garden. I think it maybe came from one of those wildflower packets that I threw out, you know, at some point. Some things are bird sown too in my yard. And so maybe that's it. But it comes back year after year it's got this ferny little leaf structure for a lot of the time and then these beautiful little purple flowers and it led me to a lot of knowledge about the place the man it's named after nettle is a fascinating fascinating collector and botanist in north american plant history and so i i just i feel like it's a little plant with all kinds of you know perennial interest i don't think anyone's ever mentioned that one before tom what do you think yeah I think that's, that's a, a first a new one. <laughs> and at, at one point we were trying to put a list together of all the favorite native plants and like list it yeah. by episode and uh that, that kind of crashed and burned yeah, at did. one point it, it was a lot harder thing to put together a hundred and some episodes in than, than we gave it credit for so. that is a fantastic choice now i have yeah. to look at into nettles now to 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 learn yeah thomas nettle thomas nettle tells us a lot about who 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 we are we plant people Mm -hmm. (laughs) so this at at this point of the show we we do our final thoughts and we always start with our guest and this is where we hand the floor over to you and you can take as much time as you want you can summarize you can promote 
you can use it however you'd like, but the floor is yours. You told me that you were going to do that. I did. And um, I, you would think that I would have prepared myself better for this. Um, I just really want to say thank you for taking the time to chat. You reached out before Soil was in the world, and I ended up on a bit of a whirlwind tour and lost your email pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> so I thank you for um, sticking with me so that I could come here and talk about the book and talk about these thoughts. Um, I think that I just love anybody who's thinking about native plants, large scale or small scale. Um, and one of the last thing I think I might want to say about like why, in addition to all this pollinator bits that we talked about, one of the reasons that I found myself leaning more and more towards native plants is that they are so sturdy. And so in my kind of odd, hot, and then cold and snowy and then hot um, kind of Colorado climate, these native plants know what to do. And so I don't have to be as fussy as a gardener as I might if I were trying to deal with some other kinds of plants that really weren't meant for this climate. And so for anybody who's thinking about like, I want to do this, but I'm scared. We've talked about like ways that native plants can look kind of gangly, et cetera, et cetera. But I do want to put that out there that after they get established, they're like, they're chill. They're like those teenagers that live in the house beside you. And, you know, they pretty much do their own thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Nature always finds a way. It amazes me every time I see a native plant in a place that you shouldn't expect to see or you don't expect to see and they're thriving. And it just always kind of – I always find myself taking photos of those going, I didn't expect to see you here, but I'm glad you're here. Glad you found a way. And it's – it's uh. I just love that. That's a fantastic thought. Yeah. Was that your final thought or it, you have another one? It's not. Well, I'll throw – I'll make that my thought, but I'll throw this in also. I feel so strongly about this book that I'm hoping we can give away a, a copy or two to yeah, our listeners. I think that sounds uh, good. We'll tie it into uh, – we'll, we'll pick someone who has given a five-star review, but you have to write something and we'll pick something. Uh, yeah. We'll give it, let's say, by November episode 1st. Episode 180. 180. All right. Episode 180. <laughs> Let me sweeten the pie oh. and say that I will send you signed copies Ooh. that you can pass along. I would love yeah. that. All right. Yeah. All right. I would love that. Now I have to enter. I got to do a five-star yeah. review so I can get one. <laughs> <laughs> but the thank, thank you for being so generous. That's So let's do that. We feel that strongly that that our listeners would not only want to enjoy this book, we feel that you mm -hmm. should read this book. Yeah. And and let's let's do that by episode 180. We're going to pick uh, a couple random winners from five-star reviews. Yeah. Write that down so we don't forget. All right. Forget I'm writing it down right now. <laughs> so, and then, uh, yeah, my final thought is, um, like Camille said, start small. Don't do what I did and just do your whole front garden. Uh, it, it can work out. And it actually, I really like it, but it's not everyone's cup of tea. Um, but yeah, start small and then share. Um, you have someone new that moved in the neighborhood, maybe instead of bringing cookies, bring a neighbor plant, maybe bring them both. And then they, <laughs> they really won't be upset with you. Um, yeah. And like going to housewarming gifts, 
uh, parties, that kind of stuff. Um, it's just a good way to to be inclusive and and share something you already have. And even if it just ends up in a corner of their their garden and they don't really think about it, at least you know there's one more native plant out there that's that's helping. So awesome, yeah. awesome. All right, I think that about wraps it up. Go ahead, Tom. Oh yeah, I forgot I have to do that part. Don't. <laughs> So, yeah, so that is going to wrap us up for today. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed listening to Camille Dungy. For more information, you can visit her website, which is www.camilledungy.com. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pylons Nursery. And we'll make sure to put all those links uh, within the show notes also and where you can buy a book. Uh, we have to say thank you to the Egocentric Plastic Men for contributing our theme music. Make sure you stream or buy their songs wherever you consume music. Also, thank you to Dave Bennett for a Native Plant an- Anthem. Uh, which is becoming a huge part of the show. Follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Native Plants underscore Healthy Planet, and also YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Don't forget about the question and comment line. You can call us at 215-346-6189. You can ask a question or leave a comment, and we'll play it on a future episode of The Buzz. I'll repeat that number one more time, 215-346-6189. We actually had someone send in there i will play it on the next buzz but they sent in the just the atmosphere sound from a camping trip they did out in nature uh, that's cool. that they shared and it was just yeah. i, I could have fallen asleep after listening Are you, sure you want to play that <laughs> it's, maybe it's play, not all 10 minutes of it play, we'll play a couple like play 30, 30 seconds and then yeah. finish off yeah. with an air horn yeah. to wake everyone back up so they can hear it <laughs> uh and let's not forget about the native plants healthy planet facebook group everyone has been so wonderful we appreciate your kindness and all the new uh members yeah, so you can buy uh, Native Plants Healthy Planet merch at our website, www.nativeplants. Oh, wow, I really screwed that one up. Ooh, it's been a while. www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. And um, we have a bunch of different designs up there that you can pick and choose from. And then all the profits from that, uh, we kind of get into a lump sum and then give away to uh, a Native Plant organization we feel is really doing our most recent was the Outdoor Equity Alliance. Yeah. Actually. So um, you can listen to Native Plants Healthy Planet at our website, but you're probably going to listen to uh, to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Stitcher's shutting down. Stitcher, you told me, right? done. Today's the last day. Yeah. You can listen on Alexa. Um, really, wherever you're listening now, you can listen to us again. So uh, if you can do us a big, big favor uh, and leave us a five-star view on your platform of choice, that, that really goes a long way. Uh, if you do a little write-up, that gives you your entry to win a copy of Soil, a signed copy of Soil. And um, and if you haven't already, please subscribe because that also really makes us or helps us out and makes us feel good it does. about doing this. So uh, with that, thank you, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thank you again, everyone. Camille, thank you so much for being a part of this episode. Thank you for having me. Uh, anytime. Coming up next week, we have a new episode of The Buzz, so make sure you tune in for that. And until then, keep it native. Check it
doing me a brand move that you just can't ignore! Golden Bot Astrid's Confounds the Lore, Menard is so stunning can't help but adore. Your colors, the fragrance, a piece for the eyes, I value too wild like no need to disguise. Ladies, clench, how you grace this land? In your diversity, we will take a stand! Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planted Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.